0: You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between Jefferson Public Radio and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each episode we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today's episode is one of a series of podcasts we are doing leading up to the 100th anniversary of the tragedy at Tunnel 13. On October 11th, 1923, three brothers attempted to rob a Southern Pacific train headed to San Francisco. This crime took place deep in the Siskiyou Mountains near the Oregon and California border and the would-be robbers turned murderers when they foiled the heist and left four innocent men dead. A four-year manhunt ensued led by the Southern Pacific Railroad and the U.S. Postal Investigators and resulted in millions of wanted posters spread around the world before the three Diotremant brothers were finally found and sentenced for the murder of Postal Clerk Elvin Doherty, Brakeman Coyle Johnson, Fireman Marvin Sang, and Engineer Sidney Bates. This infamous event has been hailed as the last Great American Train Robbery, among other romanticized monikers, but in fact, it's more notable for its many firsts. The podcast series is just one of many collaborative projects commemorating the history of the crime, its victims, and its expansive legacy, and we're going to be sure to share the info about all these other events and associated resources in the show notes. But today we are recording in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Forensics Lab in Ashland, Oregon, and we'll be exploring the ways in which this botched robbery resulted in the birth of modern American forensics. We're joined by Barry Baker, the Deputy Laboratory Director and Supervisory Forensic Biologist and Archaeologist by Training, Barry, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Chelsea. How are you?
0: Good, good. Thanks for coming. So I know that we could spend hours in here talking about so many things, but can you give us the elevator pitch on what this lab does?
1: So we're the U.S. National Fish and Wildlife Forensics Lab. And our primary mission is to support special agents and wildlife inspectors within the US Fish and Wildlife Service to give them forensic support for criminal investigations they're working on targeting the illegal wildlife trade.
0: That's great. And I've heard that when you onboard new employees, part of their like rite of passage is learning about this case and most who might be familiar with it from school, but but tell us a little bit about why this case is so foundational to your discipline.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting. I had never heard of this case before I I came to work here, and many of the people who come here had had never heard of it either, but um, right here uh, outside of Ashland, Oregon, is the birthplace of modern forensic science in the United States. So this Tunnel 13 train robbery, a lot of the evidence that was collected from that site was sent to a professor at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and some of his work on this case spurred modern forensics in the United States. And so new employees here, those are forensic scientists. We we go to the tunnel and talk about the history of some of those processes that were used that are some of the same methods that we use today.
0: That's so cool. And we're gonna be talking a little bit more about Edward Heinrich and how his forensic science techniques that were employed in 1923, how they've stood up today and how some of the modern technology we have can be applied and maybe could have been applied. I'll I'll quiz you a little bit about how you would approach those types of artifacts as we get going.
1: Okay, sounds great.
0: (laughs) And we also have Anna Sloan with us today, curator of the Southern Oregon Historical Society, or SOHS. Anna has brought with her to the lab a somewhat mysterious object that's housed with SOHS and is reported to have belonged to the Deotriman brothers just prior to the crime. And what better to showcase the pivotal role of this case on modern forensics than to do some science. Anna, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Chelsea, thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about this object and how it came to be in the possession of SOHS? Absolutely, so what we have
2: here is a straight razor. Um, It's a gold bug model. Um, These were made in the 19-teens up through the 1920s, some in Germany, some in the US. This is an interesting item. It came to us at SOHS through a different museum, Um, And the story from the original donation was that the donor's father's stepfather owned and operated a boarding house in Albany, Oregon, around the time that the Diotremonts were um, passing through that place. And we know that the Diotremont boy's father, Paul Diotremont, Lived in Albany for a little while and he worked there as a barber. Roy D'Otremont, one of the twins, um, we know also was employed as a barber in Albany for a little while. So, you know, there's sort of some uh, connection here to a razor, right? We think um, this is possibly something that he might have used, if not in his work life at home. But the story goes that um, this razor was left by the D'Otremont boys when they were staying in the boarding house. They had left it behind, uh, they had misplaced it, and the boarding house owners scooped it up, um, maybe kept it in there boarding house lost and found until it became known that these boys were famous for committing a crime. Um, Then it entered into sort of the family heritage. They kept it in the family for many years, then eventually donated it to um, a museum on the Oregon coast. That museum thought it would be more appropriate um, here with us in Southern Oregon, given the significance of the crime locally. And they donated it to us just a few years ago. So the provenance of this piece is slightly shaky. Um, of course, we don't have anything to absolutely verify that this was owned and used by one of the Diorchmont brothers, but that's what makes it uh, an intriguing object to explore here today uh, at the forensics lab.
0: Yeah, and we're not, you know, there's no criminal investigation with this. We're here as history detectives. <laughs> <Exactly>. So <laughs> we're building a case of a route history, not, not to, to charge anybody with, but you know a razor when you think about it is a really mundane everyday item that's you know something kind of personal and so I think a lot of people when they think of museums or or historical collections they don't think about things like razors. so you know tell us a little bit about why even if they're not tied to really famous train robberies why these kind of everyday items are important to think about as markers of heritage and social change over time
2: oh 100% I mean I say this all the time about the collection at SOHS it's the things from people's everyday lives that really fill the shelves there. Um, and although a lot of attention in museum collections is given to items that are associated with famous people or with well-known stories, oftentimes it is these more mundane everyday objects that tell us the most about how people live their lives, um, about the things that they did, about the the choices that they made, which is an interesting thing to explore. So, you know, this object, of course, can't be tied directly to the crime. We, if it was being used by one of the Diotremont brothers, it would have been before the time that the crime was committed, but it tells us a lot about the things that they were doing with their lives. You know, the parts of the story that we can put together based on the background information we've been able to collect um, add elements to the story that help to flesh it out.
0: You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm joined in the field, so to speak, by my trusty producer, Charlie Zimmerman, so that we can record some forensic testing on a historical object believed to be related to a century-old train robbery. All right, Anna just pulled the razor out of the box. It's still in a bag till we do our science on it. We don't want to contaminate anything there. We have with us Catherine Venegas-Garcia, who's an SOU student studying criminology, who's helping us out today. So Catherine, why don't you just explain what this thing looks like to the listeners?
3: Of course, what I'm looking at right now is a razor blade that goes in and out. Its handle is orange color, amber colored, and it's quite broken and rusty.
0: So what's the material there, do you think?
3: Yeah, great question. So um,
2: the handle, you know, Catherine noted that it's sort of an amber color. We believe that this might be celluloid, which is an early form of plastic. And I'd be interested to know, in fact, if it is, because it's going to affect how we store it at SOHS. Celluloid is a very sensitive um, material.
0: And when you say amber, you mean like amber, like the resin that you see, like it's like see-through a little bit. You can kind of see into it. Maybe there's writing on it. So lucky for us, in the lab with us today, we have Jen Tinsman, a forensic scientist who has some special tricks to tell whether this is celluloid or some other kind of plastic, I don't know, composite. Jen, help us here. I've got a couple of
3: items from the reference collection uh, here at the lab that we normally use to compare evidence and figure out what that's made of. But today I've got some celluloid and some more modern plastic uh, that we're going to look at under ultraviolet light to evaluate the fluorescence and see if we can tell the difference between them. And then we will compare uh, the razor today and see what the fluorescence of that razor looks like and if it's more like the plastic or celluloid.
0: In your normal um, day job, when you're not looking at history uh, science here, what would be the significance? Like, why would you care what kind of plastic it is?
3: Well, so the first question, uh, we get a lot of ivory cases at the lab, and the first question that we have to ask is, is this even ivory? Um, Because we're on the law enforcement side of fish and wildlife. If there's no crime here, if the object is in fact not ivory, well, then we just send it back to the special agent or the inspector and they return it to the person and they carry on about their day. So most of the time we are dealing with a criminal case, but we have to show that we have determined this is in fact ivory. And this fluorescence test is a really great way to tell the difference between ivory and a fake uh, plastic that might be used as sort of a dupe item. And celluloid, in fact, was used in a lot of uh, fake ivory items back when it was a more commonly used uh, material in construction. So we do see uh, occasionally somebody will come in and be like, oh, this was my grandmother's ivory inlaid uh, jewelry box or something. And it turns out it's actually celluloid. But that's why we have these items in the reference collection so that we can physically compare them to whatever we're evaluating, whether it's case evidence or a piece of history. Thank you, let's do it. So this is a VSC 8000. It is machine, so it's, it's a box. It kind of looks like a giant pizza box that you can examine uh, smaller pieces of evidence in. And the cool thing about it is that it has a bunch of different light sources, by which I mean it has normal like white ambient light. Uh, we've got a bunch of different colors and UV light, and it's often used for document examination or looking at counterfeit money in the human forensics world. We use it to look at different materials that might give off different fluorescence under different light sources. Um, Right now I've just got the spot fluorescence on, and you can see that this, so this example modern plastic that I have here is much brighter than the celluloid that I have down here, so it does look like we're going to be able to tell the difference. So this is the celluloid right here, you can see it under normal lighting. that's what the celluloid um, looks like. So now, what are we seeing? So the plastic is really bright white under this spot fluorescent light that we have here, and our known sample celluloid is pretty dark. I think the razor also looks relatively dark. It's not fluorescing too much at all. The cracks do look a little bit brighter. Um, we don't have any reference cracked celluloid, but this, this stretch here that seems undamaged is it I think it resembles the our celluloid example more than it does our modern plastic
1: example.
0: Anna, you were right, it's celluloid. Woohoo. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is
2: very helpful to know.
1: One of the other neat things about this instrument is you saw that cracking when she was in that black and white mode. So sometimes we can use this just to bring out features that are more difficult to see with the eye to photo document them. So we may be able to see cracks under different wavelengths that you would not see with the naked eye to get a better feel of the integrity of the item.
0: Yeah, so some of the obviously they didn't have these types of machines back then, but is there like a predecessor to this type of investigation, like using black light or something, like low tech version?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So black lights would be uh, in microscopes, and uh, of course, originally magnifying glasses. Okay,
0: yeah. So some pretty simple stuff that's just like got a tech spin here. So, but in 1923, they would have had black light in microscopes and magnifying glasses. Yeah. And what I think from their from the case, they have a gun and some ammunition and coveralls. Catherine, what else was in there? There was also a pair of overalls,
3: uh-huh. which they used to see what um, one of the brothers worked as. So they found out that he was a lumberjack because they were able to analyze that there was sap on the overalls. And they were also able to tell that one of the brothers was left handed because they found that being a lumberjack the wedge chips were found in the right pocket so they were able to see that he swung left when he had his axe
0: oh that's so cool and I know that they actually id the brothers because of a receipt deep down in the pocket of one of those uh those coveralls that nobody found the first round but the scientists like pulled it out with tweezers and all that stuff too so that was probably really actually that's a perfect Thing to talk about with this because that would have been kind of washed out and faded so they would have used or or heinrich would have used something similar to this to try to get the name off of that right
1: yeah i don't remember exactly how faded that was but using a magnifying glass or um, you know the old trick of somebody's written on the notepad and the, the impression is on there you take a pencil and, and lighten it up you know there's some some simple things that you can do but uh, in, in that case i think that that receipt was found in the pencil slot of, of his overalls, you know, way down in there. So like if he had had a pencil in that part of the pocket, it would have pushed it down. So that's why it was missed. So what else can
0: we do with this machine? I
3: have just been playing around with the UV fluorescence mode. If we don't know what we're looking for, we can just cycle through a bunch of different light sources and see if any notable features pops out at you.
1: You can actually automate it to go through every combination of light settings and UV settings and it'll do hundreds or thousands of computations, and then you can visually look at those and see which ones work.
3: We can also take a really close look uh, at the
0: razor. The magnification on this goes up really high. If there was a hair or residue, like some kind of biological residue on the blade, would that show up under this? Well,
3: we know that a lot of different biological materials from bone to blood fluoresce in this band of UV radiation or UV light. So we are just uh, looking at it only in that band so that the fluorescence comes through really brightly and clearly. This might be something on top of the blade, just a little bit. This kind of fluorescence.
0: Is that a hair right in the middle right there? Yeah, that could be. Ooh.
1: I'll play devil's advocate here, and we do this a lot in actual casework. Um, so you would ask about the fiber that was there and was it a hair? Um, we're not seeing it right now, so it may have moved around. Um, one of the things that we would have to consider was that something that was already inside the machines. It could also be that it, it's a spot that's not quite as rusty. And so you're seeing more of the clean blade in that specific spot. So zooming in under high magnification, would be helpful in that instance.
0: If it is biological material, what's what's your next step? What would you normally do then, like swab it and try to test it?
1: We would look at it with these lights some more, look at them under different wavelengths. We would do some of this imaging, see zooming in. We always have to be careful when we're looking at stuff like this and we don't want to assume something's a hair. So if this was a, a real case that we were working, you know, we would be describing this as we were talking as a potential fiber and then fibers can be all kinds of things.
0: And I, I imagine that if it's a, a non-organic polyester fiber, something that's going to fluoresce very different than a hair or like a textile, plant textile kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the ways that, that forensic scientists tell different fibers apart, that you know they could look the exact same color on, with the naked eye, but then under different light wavelengths. They look completely different, and you can often identify blends and multiple fibers using methods like this. In
0: 1923, they wouldn't have had the whole wide spectrum of artificial plastics and fibers and stuff that we have to deal with today. But if if Heinrich found some hairs, what would he have been looking at? Not DNA. He didn't know that would exist. So mainly just like this person had brown hair or blonde hair, or would there be something else that he'd be looking at?
1: Yes, there are some unique features of hairs. And basically, he would be using a, a light microscope. He would be looking for the sh- internal structure of the hair, especially whether or not it had a medullary cavity. And that's something that you can see under simple microscopes with, s- with simple light light sources. And so it would have been something like that. And in
0: 1923, I think fingerprints were a known but you didn't have the databases. So a fingerprint was only as good as the suspect that you could compare it to. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, there were starting to be some attempts at some, some national databases, but most of it was all local. So it was for a local crime. If you had prints of known criminals from that specific area, you might compare it to. And, of course, all these were on cards. They were fingerprint cards. There was literally no digital access to any of this. You had to physically compare it with uh, with a magnifying glass to prints on a piece of paper
0: and without that piece of paper that actually had their name on it like what are the odds do you think just you know that they would have ever put a name i mean how many right-handed loggers were around in the 20s i would imagine a lot so the chances of them actually narrowing down the suspects to identify the people would have been low without the name or were there other things that could have individuated the, the criminals
1: Yeah, so what um, Heinrich did, this professor of chemistry at uh, UC Berkeley, was he took a broad approach to the evidence that was submitted to him and tried to build a profile of how this person behaved, what they did for a living, some of their personal attributes, and based on some of his descriptions of the clothing and and wear on the clothing and um, some of the trace evidence that he found in the pockets that we've talked about it turned out that most of his predictions as to what this suspect would look like turned out to be true he opined a lot of things that you know we would not do so in straight forensics these days but maybe a criminal profile person with ext- extensive experience would he talked about how fastidious and clean the person would have been i think there were some fingernail clippings that were found so for somebody to to, to have been You know, somebody worked in lumberjack and you you don't think of them, you know, fastidiously trimming their nails and and keeping neat and clean like that. So he did uh, make some hypotheses about their behavior in addition to their occupation and their general height and things like that based on the clothing. Yeah, so I I agree that it's a fiber. I think we need to look at it under a, a different microscope. When this instrument focuses, uh, if you think of a traditional microscope, it's got these knobs and dials that you turn to focus it. This is doing it all electronically, digitally, so it takes a while to take all of these separate images because they're in different planes and try to get them in focus in the same plane. So that's what some of this delay is. It's building this and trying to get everything into focus at the same time.
0: History detecting is slow work. Yeah. Just it's like archaeology, like, <laughs> the I, we've got
3: the blade open, so it's going, it's cutting through a lot of focal planes to try to figure out.
1: And then in the bottom right corner, there's another, another one, right?
0: I think it might be. I think it's. I think one, it's
3: two very similar fibers that are right next to each other. Okay.
0: And it is on the top, so it's on the part of the blade, well, not the blade, the opposite side of the blade, whatever that part's called, um, of the razor that would have had most contact with the inside of a pocket or case.
2: And um, I could try to open it a little bit more if that would be helpful. Um, I was like meeting
0: a little bit of resistance.
3: We've got a good non-broken thing going. (laughs) (laughs) Always good.
0: So we've been through a journey of Oh, it's a fiber. Wait, no. First we were at a journey of, hey, it's a hair. And then we learned we don't call things hair, we call things fibers. And then we got closer and it's really small. And then we thought maybe it was a hairline fracture. But now we know it's a fiber because we saw it move, but it's so little that the tweezers are just having a really hard time picking it up. But lucky for us, Barry's got another machine that can look at it even more closely. So we can hopefully get a sense if the fiber is organic or what kind of fiber it might be while it's still embedded or kind of stuck in the middle of the razor. So what do we have here?
1: Yeah, so we have uh, several instruments here. We have kind of a traditional microscope, stereoscope. Uh, I wanted to see if that would give us any insight. It's not as powerful as the other instrument we were using, but I just wanted to see if we could get a little closer view. And then we have a digital microscope over here where we can display what we're seeing on this monitor over here. So I'm looking at the blade of this under a different kind of microscope. This is just a standard stereoscope. It has illumination from the top. There's nothing shining from underneath. There's no fancy cameras or anything on this. And if you look and you'll see these fibers, and you can see multiple fibers attached to there. Um, if I'm able to zoom in a little more closely, which we'll use one of the other microscopes for that too, I, what I'm seeing right now, I don't think this is human here. It does look like some kind of non-human Fiber.
0: You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online on jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today we are talking forensic science and the ways in which an infamous train robbery spurred American forensics into the modern age. So. Just based on visual characteristics, can you get a down and dirty idea of, of if, is it an organic fiber, is it polyester from carpet, like what, what it could be?
1: Yeah, so this looks like some type of synthetic fiber to me. It doesn't look uh, like plant organic material, it doesn't look like human hair. So it's probably some, some type of clothing or, or something um, like that would be the most common thing.
0: And one of the things that we have the benefit of 100 years later, after Heinrich was was doing this work in a chemistry lab at UC Berkeley all those years ago, is databases and comparative samples. So when he was doing this, because it was so... Pioneer, such pioneering work, um, he wouldn't have been able to go like, wow, let me just look at all these other samples that have already been identified and indexed. But nowadays, would you say that that's the biggest like, development? So technology makes it easier, quicker, but really the work that's been done over the past 100 years is just the comparative stuff that you have to work with now?
1: Yeah, so the process, the comparison process, a lot of it's the same. We have especially the mental part of it, going through the, the mental exercise of it. The instrumentation is better, and then we have the advantage of having more complete databases for comparison, and those are absolutely critical.
0: We've looked at the stereoscope, and so now what do we have next?
1: So this is a, a 3D uh, microscope. Uh, it's not going to be set in 3D mode right now, but it's a digital microscope and uh, we'll be able to see this on a monitor. The other microscope we were just using, you had to look through the eye lenses. This one, we'll all be able to see it on the monitor.
0: So the microscope you're using now is attached to like a little monitor and it looks like it's portable. Is that that setup like meant to be transported? It looks like it's a little suitcase or something? Yeah, it is. So when you're doing your crime scene analysis, you can like do this in the field or something?
1: You could actually take this with you and and take it to the field or uh, put it in a... in a mobile lab or take it to a university or a museum to, uh, to look at stuff.
0: I'll try to get a picture, but for those listening, it, it looks to me like um, in the science fiction movies when somebody had like a, a suitcase with alien technology and a little screen pops up. It's very like x Filesy, so this yeah. is pretty cool. Let's see what it can do.
1: <laughs> okay, so we've got an, an image up of this, of one of the fibers. There's more than one fiber on this blade this one looks different than from the other one that I was just looking at so some of these could potentially be hairs
0: it it does look so different and it's it's interesting that you know even though that tool that box does so much it doesn't really fully replace just good old-fashioned microscope and yeah that's amazing how different that looks
1: yeah so we have a suite of tools that we use sometimes old school and simpler is is better sometimes you can overthink it and um, you know you don't have to pay tens of thousands of dollars for something and sometimes all you need is a magnifying glass the other fiber that i was looking at it almost looked like it it had multiple strands whereas this looks like a single strand so the other fiber that i was looking at it either either looked woven woven or maybe it was plant material um i know (laughs) I know that we've been taking a long route to get through all this and using a lot of stuff and still not having a a final answer. Uh, There are some other tests that that we would do if this was a a real forensic case. Uh, They would involve damaging the specimen though, mounting it on on slides and doing some other things. So if we were really trying to catch the bad guys, we we would, uh, those are the types of things that we would do, but uh, I don't want to manipulate this historical artifact.
2: I know we're not DNA testing today, but what is the timeline like in terms of getting good samples?
1: Meaning if you were going to send this off to a lab and have it done?
2: Yeah. I know a little bit about this from background in archaeology, but what does that look like in terms of preservation? How long will DNA preserve on an object and uh, under what conditions? Would we be able to find any on there?
1: Potentially so, yeah. So there are, there's DNA that has been you know found in bones, from animals that are, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of years old. So it depends on how this was was treated and where it was targeted and whether or not, you know, you would authorize destructive testing uh, um, rather than just a swab. But yeah, there's potential for preservation of DNA on things like this for sure. Now, there's probably been so many people that have handled this <laughs> that, that uh, trying to narrow down who that was would be challenging, although less so over the past five years because of advances in um, ancestral genealogy DNA analysis.
0: And I think that that's a great way to wrap this up. So we, we got to use a bunch of different forensic technology. We got to discuss the ways in which what's changed, what's stayed the same, what we know now that they didn't know 100 years ago. But at the end of the day, I think what's really cool about this is this artifact now, Anna has more information about how to safely store and curate this piece so that the next uh, generation of people who want to play scientists and history detectives will still have access to this you know, evidence, if you will, and they can um, learn even more about it as technology continues to evolve. So very cool. That wraps up this round of underground history on the Jefferson Exchange. Our producers are Angela Decker and Charlie Zimmerman. You can find underground history online at jeffexchange.org or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Join us for a special live edition of Underground History commemorating the tragedy at Tunnel 13 on Wednesday, October 11th at the Ashland Hills
0: Hotel from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. The event is free and open to the public.